have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. 
We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred.
bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. As we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is a victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I am not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day 
Even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor, having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. Yes. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is a faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, 
we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. America is essentially a dream. It is a dream of a land where men of all races, of all nationalities, and of all creeds can live together as brothers. The substance of the dream is expressed in these profound words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. One of the first things we notice in this dream is its amazing universalism. It does not say some men, but it says all men. It doesn't say some, it doesn't say all white men, but it says all men, which includes black men. doesn't say all Gentiles, but it says all men, which includes Jews. It doesn't say all Protestants, but it says all men, which includes Catholics. That is something else that we notice in this dream, which is one of the the things that distinguishes democracy and our form of government with other totalitarian systems. It says that there are certain basic rights that are neither conferred by nor derived from the state. In order to discover where they came from, it is necessary to move back behind the dim mist of eternity. They are God-given. Very seldom, very seldom, if ever in the history of the world, has a socio-political document expressed in such profound, eloquent, and unequivocal language the dignity and the worth of human personality. For the American dream reminds us that every man is the heir of a legacy of dignity. And yet ever since the founding fathers of our nation dreamed this dream, America has been, to use a big word that the psychologists and the psychiatrists use, a schizophrenic personality. 
she has proudly professed the noble principles of democracy and on the other hand she has proudly practiced or she has sadly practiced the very opposite of those principles. Indeed slavery and segregation have always been strange paradoxes in a nation founded on the principle that all men are created equal. So often, America has trampled over the dream. So often, America has scarred this noble dream. We look and see certain states saying they will never comply with the law of the land. In doing this, America is scarring the dream. We notice people who merely want to be free, being brutalized, homes being bombed, churches being bombed. This is a way of scarring the American dream. We notice people who merely want to exercise their citizenship rights, being thrown into jail. This is a way of scarring the dream. And we can hear the voice of a little Emmett Till crying from the rushing waters of Mississippi. This is a way of scarring the dream. And so the Negro is still trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. And so often he has been pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing in the piercing chill of an alpine November. This is scarring the American dream. May I say to you, as has been said so eloquently all the afternoon, this dream is being scarred not only in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, and all of the southern states, but it is being scarred in New York, in uh, Illinois, in Pennsylvania, and I imagine even in California. The fact is that the Negro all over America is still the last hide in the first five, and he still can't live where he wants to live and where his money can get him to live. But today, more than ever before, America is challenged to bring this noble dream into reality. For the shape of the world today does not afford us the luxury of an, of an anemic democracy. And the price that the United States must pay for the continued exploitation of the Negro and other minority groups is the price of its own destruction. People are looking over to the United States today and they're wondering what we're doing about this problem. They're looking over from Asia and Africa. 
For years, most of these people have been dominated politically, exploited economically, segregated and humiliated by some foreign power. Today they are gaining their independence, more than one billion, six hundred million of the former one billion, eight hundred million colonial subjects have their independence today. And they are saying in no uncertain terms that racism and colonialism must go. The hour is late, the clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. It is trite but urgently true that if America is to remain a first-class nation, she can no longer have second-class citizens. hasten to say that we must not solve this problem merely to meet the communist challenge. We must not seek to solve this problem merely to appeal to Asian and African peoples. This problem must be solved in the United States because segregation and discrimination are morally wrong. It must be solved because Segregation relegates persons to the status of things and stands against all of the noble principles of our Judeo-Christian heritage. It must be solved not merely because it is diplomatically expedient, but because it is morally compelling. This must be said all over the world. And I would say that there are some things that we must continue to do in order to make the American dream a reality and save our nation in this hour. And I would like to mention them as briefly as possible and elaborate on them briefly. First, in order to make the American dream a reality, we must seek to make the world dream a reality and therefore we must begin with a world perspective. For you see, the world in which we live is geographically one. And now we are challenged to make it spiritually one. Now it is true that the geographical oneness of this age in which we live came into being to a large extent through man's scientific ingenuity. For man through his scientific genius has been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. Yes, we've been able to carve highways through the stratosphere. And our jet planes have compressed into minutes distances that once took days. Bob Hope has described this new jet age in which we live, and I think he's given an adequate description. He said it is an age in which it is possible to take a non-stop flight from Los Angeles to New York, and if on taking off in Los Angeles you develop hiccups, you will hick in Los Angeles and cup in New York City. <laughs> You know, it is possible because of the time difference to take a flight from Tokyo, Japan on Sunday morning and arrive in Seattle, Washington on the preceding Saturday night. And when your friends meet you at the airport and ask when you left Tokyo, you will have to say, I left tomorrow. <laughs> this is the kind of world in which we live. This is a bit humorous, but I'm trying to laugh a basic fact into all of it, and it is simply this. 
that through our scientific genius we've made of the world a neighborhood. And now through our moral and ethical commitment, we must make of it a brotherhood. We must all learn to live together as brothers or we will all perish together as fools. This is what we must do. And it simply means that every nation must be concerned about every other nation. Every individual must be concerned about every other individual. Some months ago, Mrs. King and I journeyed over to that great country known as India. I never will forget the experience, the experience of talking with and meeting with the great leaders of India, and meeting people in the cities and the villages all over that country. A noble and marvelous experience. And I say to you this afternoon, there were those depressing moments. For how can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes millions of people going to bed hungry at night? How can one avoid being depressed when he sees with his own eyes millions of people sleeping on the sidewalks at night? In Calcutta, more than a million people sleep on the sidewalks every night. They have no beds to sleep in. They have no houses to go in. How can one avoid being depressed when he discovers that out of India's population of 400 million people, more than 365 million make an annual income of less than $60 a year, and most of these people have never seen a doctor or dentist. As I notice these conditions, something within me cried out, can we in America stand idly by and not be concerned? And an answer came, oh no. The destiny of India and the destiny of every other nation is tied up with the destiny of the United States and the destiny of the United States is tied up with the destiny of India. And I started thinking about the fact that right here in America we spend more than a million dollars a day to store surplus food. And I found myself saying I know where we can store that food free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the hundreds and millions of people who go to bed hungry at night. Maybe we've spent far too much of our money in the United States establishing military bases around the world rather than bases of genuine concern and understanding. All I'm saying is simply this, that all life is interrelated. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly, it affects all indirectly. As long as that is extreme poverty in this world, no man can be totally rich even if he has a billion dollars. As long as diseases are rampant, as long as diseases are rampant and millions of people cannot expect to live more than 28 or 30 years, no one can be totally healthy even if he just got a checkup in the finest clinic of the nation. Strangely enough, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the way the world is made. This is the interrelated structure of reality. John Don caught it years ago and could place it in graphic terms. No man is an island entire of itself. 
Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Then he goes on toward the end to say any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. This is the meaning of having a world perspective. If we are to realize the American dream, another point is that we must get rid of the notion once and for all that there are superior and inferior races. We must make it clear all over this land and all over the world that a doctrine of white supremacy has no basis in anthropology, has no basis in scientific thinking, and has no basis in morality. Now, you know, people used to argue, this thing still gets around, people used to argue that the Negro uh, was inferior by nature. And they went back in the Bible and they would get up certain passages in the Bible. It's a strange thing how people will use religion often to justify their prejudices. And they would go back in the Bible and they would say, now the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. And you know, that was a great philosopher back in Greek philosophy by the name of Aristotle who did a great deal to set up formal logic and he would have what was known as a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And so one brother during the days of slavery wanted to justify slavery and uh, he had set his argument up on the framework of Aristotle's thinking. He could say now all men are made in the image of God and then came his minor premise, God, as everybody knows, is not a Negro, therefore the Negro is not a man. This is the kind of reasoning that prevailed. But today, uh, we don't hear these arguments too much. Uh, they argue now on more cultural and subtle sociological grounds. Uh, the Negro is not culturally ready for integration. And uh, if you integrate uh, schools and if you integrate too much, uh, the Negro will pull the white race back a generation. And then they go on to say, you know, that the Negro is inherently criminal and uh, all of these things. Now, these people never say to us that many of these problems are problems of urban dislocation and that poverty, ignorance, and disease breed crime, whatever the racial group may be, that these conditions are environmental and not racial. And it is a torturous logic to use the tragic results of segregation and discrimination as an argument for the continuation of them. The thing to do is to get rid of them. And so over this nation, we must get rid of the notion once and for all if we want to realize the dream that there are superior and inferior races. Now that is a final point that we must, the final thing that we must do in order to realize the American dream. We must continue to engage in creative protest to break down the barriers of segregation and discrimination. Now I know that there are those people who are the victims of some strange illusions. And uh, they don't believe in the necessity for continued pro protest. One illusion is a myth of time.
They say, uh, just wait and don't push things and be patient and pray and, and time will work this problem out. You've heard that, I'm sure. These people fail to realize that time is neutral and it can be used positively or negatively. We've seen this method work in the South. And the fact is that the segregationists at points have made a much more effective use of time than some other sources of goodwill, even the federal government. And I am convinced that we may have to repent not only for the blatant vitriolic words of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. Talking about time. We must get rid of the notion that human progress rolls in on the wheels of inevitability. We must come to see that human progress is never inevitable. It comes through the tireless efforts and the persistent work of dedicated individuals. And without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the primitive forces of social stagnation. We must make it clear that the time to do right is now and that the time is always right to do right. Now, the other illusion is the myth of educational determinism, as I call it. You've heard these people say, now you've got to change the hearts of men. That's the only way you can solve it. And I guess that's true, uh, to solve it ultimately. And they say, it takes education to solve this problem. It's an educational process. And therefore, it can't be done through legislation. It can't be done through judicial decrees. It can't be done through executive orders by the President of the United States. It must be done through education. Now, I, I, I think it's right that education must work in this whole area, but it is both education and legislation, not either legislation or education. Now, it may be true that morality cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. I guess it is true that uh, the law can't make a man love me. Religion and education must do that. But the law can keep him from lynching me, and I think that's pretty important, too. So it means that we must push on in legislation, in the North and in the South. Every state should have a Fair Employment Practice Commission so that there will be no discrimination in this area. Every state needs a fair housing law so that it will be made clear that there can be no discrimination in housing publicly or privately and that even real estate people who will try to perpetuate this will have to stand before the bar of justice. This must be done all over the United States. Then we must continue to delve deeper into the philosophy of nonviolent resistance. That is something about this method that has power. And I know that there are those who will ridicule it occasionally, but it has worked miracles in the South. It has morality with it because it gives us the opportunity to work to secure 
moral ends through moral means. This is the morality of it. But it has certain practical consequences. It exposes the moral defenses of the opponent, somehow weakens his morale, and all at the same time it is working on, its, on, on his conscience. It disarms him, and he just doesn't know what to do with it. If he puts you in jail, that's all right. If he doesn't put you in jail, fine. If he beats you up, that's all right. If he doesn't beat you up, that's all right. If he tries to kill you, all right. You develop the quiet courage of dying, if necessary, without killing. If he tries to threaten you, all right. If he doesn't. And that is something about it which causes the opponent not to know what to do. Now, he would know what to do with violence. He could call out the state militia. He could call out the National Guard and kill hundreds and hundreds of innocent people and argue that they are inciting a riot. They know how to handle violence, but they proved over and over again that they don't know how to handle non-violence because they throw people... They try to handle it by throwing us in jail. But what happened? We go into the jails of Jackson, Mississippi and transform these jails from dungeons of shame to havens of freedom and human dignity. I can't stop it. I believe firmly that this is the way. Now, that is another aspect of it, about this method. And people ask me about it all the time. So, what do you mean when you tell us to love these people who are beating on us and bombing our houses and kicking our children around. What in the world do you mean when you say love such people? And I always have to stop and try to define the meaning of love in this area. And interestingly enough, Greek philosophy comes to our aid at this point. There are three words in the Greek language for love. One of them is the word eros. Now eros is a sort of aesthetic love uh, the philosopher Plato talks about it a great deal in his dialogues, the yearning of the soul for the realm of the divine. It has come to us to mean a sort of romantic love, and so we all know about Eros. We've experienced it. We've read about it in the beauties of literature. In a sense, Edgar Allan Poe was talking about Eros when he talked about his beautiful Annabelle Lee with a love surrounded by the halo of eternity. In a sense, Shakespeare was talking about Eros when he said, Love is not love, which alters when its alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. It is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark. You know, I can remember that because I used to quote it to my wife when we were coding. That's Eros. That's Eros. Then the Greek language talks about phileo, which is another level of love. It is an intimate affection between personal friends. On this level, we love because we are loved. We love people that we like. This is friendship. Then the Greek language has another word called agape. Agape is more than romantic love. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is not something affectionate. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And when one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, but he loves every man because God loves him. He goes on with that. 
And so he rises to the level of hating the system rather than the individual who is caught up in that system. He loves the person and hates the evil deed. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And I'm happy that he didn't say like your enemies because it's pretty difficult to like some people. It's difficult to like people bombing your home and threatening your children and kicking you about. But Jesus says, love them, and love is greater than like. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. And somehow, more and more, I've come to believe this. This is the way that we will get out of this dark night of oppression and make of this nation a better nation. It means that we can stand up and allow the, allow the opposition to know that we will not accept injustice. We will stand up against it with our lives, but we will never stoop down to the level of violence and hatred. And we will come to that point when we will be able to convince him that a new world is emerging. And I tell you this evening that it will give us the right attitude. I know sometimes how discontent we get, and we have a right to get discontent, and how frustrated we get in the process sometimes. But I submit to you this evening that this way of nonviolence will help us not to seek to rise from a position of disadvantage to one of advantage, thus subverting justice. We will not substitute one tyranny for another, for black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. this afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race and the creation of a society. I believe with this method and this approach, we will be able to win. And finally, as we struggle, we do not struggle alone. It's dark sometimes. It's difficult particularly for those who are struggling in the deep south facing all of the violence and all of the suffering. That is something that consoles us along the way. We are convinced that our cause is right. I return to Alabama, Mississippi, and Georgia, not in despair, not in bitterness. I return knowing that we are moving into a bright day of freedom. We, through our struggles, through our suffering, through our sacrifice, will be able to achieve the American dream. This will be the day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, Thank God Almighty, we are free at last.